You're listening to the Real Estate Entrepreneur Podcast with Terrence Murphy, where we cover sales, investing, and entrepreneurship with an emphasis on real estate. Each podcast, Terrence and his guests will bring you informative and inspiring information within the real estate industry. Welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Entrepreneur with Terrence Murphy. Uh, I have my guest today, Sam Bates. He's the founder and CEO of Bates Capital Group and co-founder and managing partner of Trinity Capital Group. Sam started his real estate journey in 2009 and has been directly involved in acquisition, reposition, disposition, and asset management over $100 million in real estate. His portfolio currently has 750 units in Texas, Mississippi, and Georgia. Sam and his partners have rough, roughly another 250 units in the pipeline to be developed as new construction. Sam has a bachelor's uh, from Texas A&M University in finance and also has an MBA from Texas Tech University. Welcome him to the show today. So welcome to another episode of The Real Estate Entrepreneur. I'm here with an amazing guest, an Aggie graduate who's doing some amazing stuff in the multifamily space. But you guys know I like to start off with a quote, and I got one today. So great minds discuss ideas, average minds discuss events, and small minds discuss people. Eleanor Roosevelt. It's a great quote, man. So we're on here talking about ideas because my guest is doing some amazing things since he graduated from A&M. And I want to welcome Sam Bates to the show today. Thank you for being here, bro. Thank you, Terrence. It's my pleasure. And I look forward to talking to you and sharing some ideas. Cool, man. We just put two and two together. First off, we're the same class at Texas A&M, class 2005, which is the best graduating class ever in university. But we stayed in the same dorm. He, he, he stayed in the same wing as me, actually right across the hallway. So that's so why you got to always treat people with respect because you never know how life is going to bring it back. But yeah, man, let's dive into it. Tell me your story, bro. Tell me in two sentences, three sentences, two minutes, take your time, your story, how you got to real estate, but give me that sum up until you got into real estate. Yeah, this is more a thousand foot view. I graduated with A&M from a, with a bachelor's in finance. I thought I was going to go and get my master's in real estate. But during the summer from undergrad to grad school, I worked at UBS as an investment intern. But then I got a job as an investment analyst and thought that the stock market was right have to go down. So I stayed out in California for a few years working as an investment analyst. I loved my time there. And at that point, I thought it was time to go back to grad school. So I went to grad school, got my MBA, got my master's in personal financial planning, and then the market crashed. And at that point, I didn't want to get into the stock market. I couldn't trust it. I saw family, friends, even some of my personal wealth grants a lot smaller compared to theirs, but it was they lost 30, 40, 50% in a short amount of time. So I got a job at a consulting firm in Dallas and I quickly realized I couldn't stay in the rat race for 40 or 50 years. It was I was at a computer screen 10, 12, sometimes longer a day, just reading tax laws and reading about oil and gas equipment, it just didn't excite me at all. So I started investing as a limited partner in large multifamily syndication, and then also started buying single family houses at that time. And that is what catapulted me into real estate. Love it, bro. So let's talk about it. So when you did, did you buy the single family rentals first or did you invest in the syndication as a limited partner first? Which one did you do first? The initial investment was in the syndication, but I started to do it simultaneously. I had some additional capital that I could buy rentals with. And it was probably six months to 12 months into the syndication. At that point, the syndication wasn't doing well. So I felt like I should take over and just be responsible for 
how the wealth that I'm going to create grows. So that's when I started buying single family. Love it, bro. So let's walk through that first deal in, in, in the syndication. What do you feel like you learned if you took three lessons away from investing as a limited partner or passive investor? What are some lessons that you learned from that? Yeah, the, there are a lot of lessons, but probably the top three is I learned thoroughly bet your sponsor. I invested with a guy who had been in multifamily for about 20 years and he had been successful, but we bought in a pocket of Dallas that we didn't realize it was quite as bad as it turned out to be. But it's in a great submarket. I mean, now houses are in five to five hundred thousand to a million plus. But at that time, and still today, there's a pocket of, of apartments that are really rough. Mm. So obviously, location and tenant tenant demographics are important. But then your sponsor, and then just seeing kind of their past track record and how they're going to adjust because. We had a tenant base that he had never dealt with before, and he was self-managing. And we had to go through three property managers until we got a good one. So, And we actually had to remove the general partner from the sponsorship team because over the two, two and a half year period, we were in the red the entire time. Mm. So, so no, no return, no capital. How did y'all end up discarding of that project? How did you unwind that partnership? Did y'all end up selling it at some point? Or? Yeah, we sold it. And luckily, the market had risen at that point. So overall, we got about an 8% cash on cash return. IRR, sorry, not cash on yeah. cash return. Yeah. So in the end, it turned out well, but it could have been a lot better than what it did. And I think just how we finished it off was we had a bridge loan on the deal that was coming to an end. So we had to either refinance or sell. And as a partnership, we felt like it was just the wise decision to sell at that point and then kind of move on everybody in their separate ways. Cool. I'm going to come back to that. So then you said, okay, I want a little more control. I want to, to be able to place my own capital, which is what I did after the 08 market. That's when I started buying single family rentals, duplexes, redeveloping around Cowfield and all that stuff. What made you go into single family? And then when you got in, do you feel like it accomplished what you were trying to get done by placing your own capital? The reason I went into single family was at the time, I didn't have much capital. So I felt like... And in, at that time, I was buying single family houses for under 100000 in Dallas. So you could do what now everybody calls the Burr method, but go in, buy, renovate, refinance, and repeat for usually out of pocket, like 20000 30,000, and then you'd recoup it pretty quickly after from the refinance. So it was a good way to build some wealth, but I quickly realized that it wasn't scalable and it wasn't repeatable. And it's hard to raise money from people on single family investments. Granted, there are single family funds, but just from my mindset and what I was looking to do, I thought multifamily was the next step. Love it. I want to hit the bird method real quick because that's come up before and it's just, it's an industry-wide kind of acronym that we just kind of throw out there as experienced investors. So it's buy, renovate, refinance, repeat, right? Yes, it is. And so when we're talking to our listeners, is there a certain kind of window in there? Is there a certain kind of return when you're looking at doing the Burr method? What would you say be like would be the top three metrics when I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to do the Burr method on this. What does that look like? And I haven't bought a single family since 2012 or 13. So I I think the lending metrics might have changed. But at least when I was buying, I was looking for something at least 30% discount. 
preferably larger than that. But the idea was you would buy it, renovate it, and then refinance it. And at that time, they're usually lending 70 to 75% of after repair value. So if you could get it under that and keep your renovation dollars to that 70 to 75%, you'd realistically pull out all your capital and then move it to the next project. Exactly. And and for everybody listening, after repair value, that's where you see ARV. So not as good, man. So you move into, move into, into multifamily. You just feel like, hey, I can raise more capital or I have more investors who want to place capital in that type of sector or category. What's your first, like, what's your next steps? Because that's, I think that's the biggest thing I've seen with the podcast and the books and people like us doing the deals. We kind of learn it and do it on our own. But for people sitting and listening, they always get stuck on the transition. Like, it's hard to make that transition. Like, I get so many messages of guys like, I've been doing flipping for 10 years and I want to get into multifamily. I want to get into development. I just don't know how to. So how did you transition once you said, okay, single family is not getting it. What steps did you take to get into multifamily? The, the first few steps is, well, I thought I was going to buy some small apartments on my own. And I started underwriting the deals. I started doing tours, looking at it. And I quickly realized if you're buying a 15, 20, 30 unit property, that's going to be a lot of work. <laughs> you can't really bring in a property management company because they're going to cost too much. And then you're going to have to self-manage. And at that time, I still had a full-time W-2 job. So it would have just took a lot of time and energy that I didn't have at the time. And luckily, I ran into a guy I used to work with. And he was kind of in the same stage of, I guess, investing. And he was he invested in some small single families. And then he was looking to do multifamily himself. And after we started talking, we were discussing ideas. And that's when we decided to come together and try to buy a multifamily apartment. And honestly, it took... I mean, looking back, we were underwriting really conservatively. I think we had never raised capital from anybody. We had never taken anybody's money. So we don't want to lose it. And mm. at that time, people were saying the market was towards its peak and it's going to correct in a year or two. And so it took us... We started looking at deals in 14 together. And by the end of 15, we hadn't got a deal. <laughs> so mm. we knew... Well, my partner knew a guy who was a developer and a builder for roughly 20 years at that point. And we asked him if he could build an apartment for us. And that's where I guess the syndication journey started. Love it, bro. Yeah, because you realize, all right, now I got a partner. We're looking for deals. Deal flow is a is an issue in the multifamily space, especially right now. It's so competitive. And and I think that's also some wisdom in that, Sam, where you didn't just let that be the end all be all. You said, okay, I need to come up with a solution. and when I see people transitioning from being W-2 or investing in the stock market or whatever to, to real estate, as soon as they hit headwind, they quit and they go do something else. Or they say, oh, I tried to do, you know, investing in real estate. My first deal, I managed it. It didn't go well. I sold it. I don't invest in real estate. They just quit. And so what yeah. you said is, I'm not quitting. I'm going to find another solution. Found a guy who can build. And then that moves you into the syndication space. And so when you say underwriting, what is underwriting? Like, what does that even mean? If I'm telling someone, what does that mean? Are you running spreadsheets yourself? Are you getting with lenders? Like, what does underwriting mean? For myself and how I look at deals is we've created a spreadsheet that probably has 10 to 15 tabs. And yeah, we'll do a quick and dirty analysis. 
of the deal and see if it makes sense from a high level. And if it does, we'll start digging deeper. But for me and underwriting a multifamily deal, that means looking at the T12 or the P&L, it's basically gives you a snapshot of the business and it's showing how good the property is running. It shows your income, your from rents, the income that is generated from other other income or in multifamily, there's what's known as rubs. And it's basically billing back tenants for the different utilities. And then mm-hmm. you see all the expenses and you can see if they're overpaying, if they're underpaying and just get a good idea. And that also gives you your NOI. And that's how multifamily is valued is off the NOI and the cap rate. So that's very important to look at. And also when I'm underwriting, I'll look at the rent roll. We'll look at if we know the market, we won't dig into it. But if we're in a new market or maybe even a suburb or a different area, I'll always look at median household income. I'll look at the economic drivers that are pushing employment, pushing population growth, and a lot of other things to see if it's a good investment. Love it, bro. Love it. Yeah, that's a quick, that's just a quick flyover how you're evaluating and underwriting. So in today's market, when you're raising capital and let's say you came to me to pitch and say, hey, T, I got an apartment deal. I want you to invest in it, right? What are those high points that you're hitting with investors or people that will be limited partners or your whole time? We're going to hold it for five years. Here's the, here's the projected internal rate of return. Here's our, we're looking for a 1.5x multiple. Like what are those kind of top five to seven things that you're talking to passive investors about when you're raising capital? Yeah, I think you touched on some of it. Hold period's um, really important because if you're, you, you should always get your priorities and vision aligned with a passive investor because if you don't, the limited partner from the get goes is going to struggle. And on acquisitions, we'll usually hold it from three to seven years, but on developments, sometimes we'll project out 10 years because if we've built a great property, we don't want to just turn around and sell it. We want that consistent cash flow. So aligning our whole period obviously one of the first questions investors have is how much money are they going to make and so <laughs> they want to know the cash on cash return and some investors don't understand irr so they'll look at annual return or equity multiple where equity multiple is if i invest a hundred thousand and it's a two equity multiple you'll make you'll double your money in whatever the whole period is correct so the higher the equity multiple, the more money you're going to make. So those are some of the questions. We, we've always invested in tertiary markets or secondary markets. And some of the investors have a lot of questions on the markets and job growth, the just why people are living there. So we have to give them a lot of information on the city and all the job drivers. I think they also want to know about how we mitigate risk. Now that we've had repeat investors over and over, it's, we've streamlined the process quite a bit. But for some of your investors to invest in a syndication, you create a private placement memorandum that's registered with the SEC. And it's a legal document. Sometimes can be 40 pages, sometimes can be longer. And it just gives you pretty much... It's a CYA from a legal perspective and saying all the risks that happen, that could happen, might happen. And then we'll give a business plan to them. So... There's a lot of things that the investor has to look at, read through, then digest, and we'll get all kinds of questions from that. Love it, bro. Yeah, because, yeah, it's just the the PPM is just a, a projection. So what would be the difference, if I'm asking, from a PPM and an 
like a marketing offering memorandum or something that you kind of, do you put those together or do you kind of split it when you're meeting with people? Yeah, we started off doing business plans and then we went to slide decks and I feel like investors can scroll through a 40 slide, 40 page slide deck a lot quicker than maybe a business plan. Pitch decks are so much better. Yeah, it saves them so much time. And we'll also do webinars and that helps out a lot because you can get... If you do a live webinar, you can get 100 or 200 people in a room at at one time. Or we've done recorded webinars where we can send it out to our entire investor list and they can watch it at their leisure. So that helps. And in the slide decks, we'll put together snippets of the business plan and why we think it's a good investment. And then the PPM is created by the, an attorney, but we have to review it to make sure it's in line with the, the business plan. Yeah, man. So hang in there, Sam. I, I know I'm grilling you on this because I know people are going to ask me, you know, like, hey, I wish you would because I'm always trying to think from a listener's perspective, you like get them right to the edge and they're like, man, I just wish Terrence would have asked that question, right? And so one of my last questions on this and then we can move on because I want to tell more of your story and, your, and the, the amazing things you're doing is once you are creating it, right? Are you doing where you're a deal by deal raise? So like, a, hey, I'm going to raise capital for just this one deal, right? And if so, do you kind of have a minimal amount? Like, hey, man, if I'm going to raise capital, the project needs to be 20 million or 15 million. Or how do you evaluate where you guys spend your time and what you go after? So far, we've done raises on an individual basis. We've talked about a fund, but no, I was going to say with, with that, that's that blind fund is just a lot more regulation on that. There's a lot more regulation. And honestly, as far as it is to find assets right now, it puts a lot of pressure on us to maybe overpay to get an asset. Yep. And we have pretty stringent underwriting criteria. And if it doesn't meet those, I'm not going to... The, the, one of the differences with single family and multifamily is I think single family, especially if you're buying a home or if you have toured a single family, you let emotions get involved. With multifamily, it's strictly business. And if the numbers don't work, they aren't they aren't lying. So we try to stick to that. But so far, we've done all individual raises. We've done syndications where sometimes the minimum investment is 25 to 50,000. And then we've done joint ventures where people bring in 500,000 at a time. So it just kind of depends on the project. And some our investors have invested anywhere from like 25 to over a million dollars at one time on a project. That's awesome, bro. That's awesome. Yeah. So you got a portfolio, bro, over a hundred million that you've either repositioned, put under management. Obviously you hear the word AUM, all those things, but I mean, almost, I, I round up on everything, but 750 units, Texas, Mississippi, Georgia. Why, why those states? Obviously Texas is the best state out there, but we know that, but, but why Mississippi and why Georgia? Yeah, we. I have one asset in both both of those states, and the asset in Georgia is right outside of Atlanta. Atlanta is very similar to Dallas, Austin, or Houston, where it just has massive population growth, and everybody's moving there. So it, it seems like it's a great market, and it's going to be a strong market for many years. I've heard some economists say that they expect a six percent rent growth rate in the Atlanta MSA over the next few years, which bodes fantastically well for us. And then Mississippi, honestly, it just kind of fell into our lap. I had connections with brokers in the Memphis area and I'd underwritten quite a few deals and they didn't really pencil out. And then they sent me this one and it's 
15 minutes south of Memphis. Mm-hmm. And the the numbers just kind of flew off the charts. And once I got to learn it and started talking to the brokers more, there's Memphis has a negative connotation and a bad rap sometimes for not being safe. And there's a lot of crime. So a lot of people in Memphis is moving south to Mississippi because there's better school systems. It's a little bit safer. And it's still a 15-minute commute into Memphis for where most of the jobs are. And we we offered on it. We actually didn't get it. And some for some reason, the first buyer that was under contract, they backed out. And we were able to take it over. And it's been fantastic. We bought it, I think, in March. We were supposed to close in 2018, but there's a lot of zoning issues with the city. So we had to get it rezoned. And we closed in March of 19. And we're going through a refinance right now. But it's appraised for $3.2 million more than what we paid for it and put in rehab. So wow. Congrats, bro. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Proud of you. So... If I were going to start doing multifamily syndication, what would you say? Obviously, I need deal flow. So I need to get relationships with brokers because the best deals don't hit the market. Right. Definitely not. Then what would you say like those five fundamental things I need to put in place to start my fund to start raising capital? Is it get an analyst? Is it get an SEC attorney? I'm just throwing stuff out there trying to kind of help you lead you down the path. But what would you say those top five things to start raising capital and doing deals? I think it depends on every person and kind of their background and personality. But at least for me, the top five things were probably, like you mentioned, attorney. I think it's very important to surround yourself with a team. And that's a good syndication attorney. You need to know the brokers. You need to have a good mortgage broker. There's a lot of mortgage brokers out there, but you're going to mesh with certain ones. They go to the same wells. So they basically have the same rates. But some people have more experience than others. And whoever you feel comfortable with, I would suggest going with. Obviously, if you're raising money, you need a good network of people to help fund those deals. And a lot of people don't understand that a syndication is just pulling a lot of people's money together to buy an asset that individually you couldn't buy. So if you're wanting to invest twenty five or 100000 in the stock market, you might want to diversify and go into multifamily. And then probably that's for I guess the fifth thing. And I've since I've gotten into multifamily investing, I've surrounded myself with great people from a team perspective. Like I mentioned, the builder, and then I've a couple other partners who one was a CPA, one was an iBanker at for years. He had been in real estate. So I've always surrounded myself with a team that can help me out. And we the first, I don't know, probably eight projects, we didn't even bring anybody in as an employee. And then after we got to a point where we had to start outsourcing some of the work, we brought in some CPAs. I brought in some people to help underwrite. And then we third-party all of our property management. So I guess that would be the sixth key takeaway is there's a lot of property managers out there. They aren't created equal. (laughs) We've (laughs) We've... Granted, we're in probably seven different markets. So that's why we've had a lot of different property managers, but we've I've used probably six to seven. And now we've narrowed it down to the top three or four because you'll go through growing pains if the property managers don't know what they're doing or if you don't know how to manage the property managers. Yeah. Yeah. Especially at a certain unit size. Like you said, if it's 15 units, it's going to be tough to get a property manager on 10 units. You can do it. It's just going to squeeze the 
they're going to squeeze your your cash flow, right? But exactly. you're getting up at 100, 150 units or more. That's tough to self-manage and scale. And so finding that balance on what you really want to do, what's your vision, what's your big why, and what kind of team are you building is so important. Yeah. And we've discussed bringing property management. And I actually started creating a property management company last year because we felt like we could do it better than others. But there's a lot that goes into it. And I, I feel like... Don't do it. <laughs> that's what I've been told by many people. And probably last August, I was like, this just is for the birds. And we found three really good ones that we think we can grow with. And one's nationwide. So, And that's one of the reasons that's given us, I think, the ability to go into different markets because they already have a team in place. They already have all the processes where we aren't having to reinvent the wheel. We can do our analysis on if the markets and the numbers work and then they can put the team in place to, to run it. Yeah. Do you mind sharing that company or you want to keep that private? Yeah. Right now, I mean, there's four property managers we have that have done that, great. Yeah. But asset, well, they have two wings. They have student housing and I think they have about 135,000 student housing units. And then I think they're close to 200 on conventional units. And it's asset living or asset plus or just yeah. asset. It's kind of synonymous. Yeah. They're all over College Station. Exactly. Yeah. That's but cool, they've, they're very professional and have done a phenomenal job with our projects. That's good. So when you, so we got the underwriting, we got the, the compliance, we got the PPM, you know, we got the marketing piece, we got the pitch deck. Now you've pieced all that together. What kind of deals are you looking for? Cause you know, everybody has their niche, right? You got people who want value add. You got people who love the sixties and seventy type apartment complexes, the box look, right? You got the people who want to come in and go ground up development, right? And then you got the people who just want to buy it from bigger conglomerate companies like CBRE or whatever. And it's brand new. It's new construction. The cap rate's compressed, but it's turnkey, great. Where do you feel like there's been y'all's niche that you're looking to do? Because as this goes out, there's brokers that hear this. They may call you and say, hey, I heard you on this podcast. I actually got this this deal here. I want to send it to you. So put that out there for everybody. Yeah. As we've grown, our, I guess the assets we look at is kind of evolved, to be honest with you. We have done a lot of development. And all the developments have been in secondary and tertiary markets throughout Texas. My One of my partners, he lives on the west side of Fort Worth. So we focus more of our developments that way. But from an acquisition standpoint, we're looking more in the primary markets. Dallas, Austin, Atlanta are the main three that I look at. I've looked at Houston a little bit, but just haven't pulled the trigger on any deals down there or haven't gotten a deal yet down there. Yeah, it's competitive. Yeah, it's all, all four of those markets are very competitive and it's hard to get good deals. But all the acquisitions we've done except one are newer. I tend to try to say 1980s or newer, just because now if you think about it, 1980s, that's 40 years old. Mm-hmm. So, so there's a lot of mechanical issues and possibly deferred maintenance that hasn't been taken care of. And now the real estate cycle has gone on for so long, we're probably. I mean, you could say it's 10, 11 years long. There's not a lot of true value adds left. It's mm-hmm. been, each property has been hit two, three, four times with the next buyer improving it that much more. So we're just going in, trying to find the value to add. We're looking at mismanaged properties. That's how the Mississippi one was. It was mismanaged. 
that Lightroom property I closed on in January and the previous property management company uses a system called LRO, which helps price the rents they should charge their residents. Well, we quickly got in and realized that the two bedrooms and the three bedrooms were only $5 difference, which that mm. should never happen. Yeah. So within the first three months, not even quite three months, we've been able to push rents above what our renovated rents we projected just because they weren't pushing rents. There's a need and there was a lot of need that the prior management company wasn't taking advantage of. Yeah, I like it. So when you're looking at a deal, kind of a back of the napkin way of looking at it, you know, some people, hey, here's my rate of return, right? Here's when I can get my cash out, the Burr method, cap rates. Do you look at it from a cap rate standpoint? It's like, hey, I'm just looking at the cap rate or do you look at it and you underwrite it a different way? I used to look at it from a cap rate perspective, but I think looking at it strictly from a cap rate, you're never going to get a deal. Yeah. With interest rates as low as they are right now with COVID and bringing a lot of dry powder from hotel, hospitality, retail into multifamily, I mean, prices are higher than they've ever been. And now I'm looking more at a price per pound basis because we bid on a deal in Austin that it got under contract at 2.9 cap. Wow. So, how, how do you cash? That's got to be all cash. That's got to be all cash. I, I don't know what they were financing, how they were financing it. But I mean, the agency debt lenders were their LTV, which is loan to value, was less than 50%. It was just astronomically, the price was astronomically high. But I mean, there's a lot of, and that was an 80s vintage. So, I think now in the major markets, you're seeing four caps very regularly and some even lower than that. I think the five, six cap rate environment in the large MSA, they might be over with for a long time. Not happening. Well, how do you cash flow a four cap though? I mean, I mean, how do you cash flow? You have to put down 70%? You have to put down 60%? Right now, I mean, you could do that. Or right now with bridge loans, they're going up to, 75 or 80% of loan to cost, which you can roll in your renovation cost. And that's why it's hard to buy right now because we still are requiring a 7, 8% cash on cash return. And if, if you're buying it a four cap, <laughs> you have to use the leverage to magnify it, or you have to go in and renovate units and hopefully you can get a 100, 200 rent bump or whatever you're. Yeah, per unit. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. It's a crazy yeah. market. Yeah, man. So a couple things, man, and I thank you for your time. So when you're when you look back at it, what would you say your secret sauce is? And obviously from a competitive advantage, if it's something that, you know, you need to keep close to your best, understand. But for Trinity Capital Group, right? Why would I invest with you versus investing with this guy or with Terrence or with this dude or whoever? Why would I give you my hundred grand, two hundred grand, three hundred grand? But I think our secret sauce is we, we have done 12 projects over the last five years, but we are making sure that the numbers and the metrics hit. I know some people that in five years have bought five, 6,000 units, and, and that's great for them. But we, we're investing a significant amount of our own capital in each deal. And it's not about getting five or 6,000 units. It's about making sure that we're getting investments and in assets that we believe in. And... With the development, mean we can diversify. And if an investor needs that 
quick cash flow immediately, maybe the value add is a better option to do because the development, it can take two years, maybe three years time. before you see any cash flow. So yeah. we give them that avenue. And also the developments are going to produce a higher... Typically, they should produce a higher return on your investment than an acquisition. So I think that and just being willing to... I mean, we bought or we built retail. We built... We did a group, uh, land development. We bought an RV park. There's just a lot of things that has worked for us. Some people will disagree and say you need to focus on one specific thing, but it's so hard to get multifamily assets right now. When we see a good deal, we'll pivot and go that direction. Yeah, that's pretty much what I've done. I mean, I've done single family, package of single family homes, duplexes, townhomes, townhome project going vertical, duplex projects going vertical, you know, done commercial strip centers. I've done neighborhoods, but that creates that perspective though, right? Because now you're not just looking at it from a one facet or one trick pony type of perspective. Not that that's a bad thing, but I think it's great that you have a diverse investment background because, you know, it's one thing to be in a residential space. It's another thing to know residential, no commercial and kind of know those different sectors. You're just a diversified general partner. So I love that, man. Where do you see the, what do you see as the biggest opportunity in the next 12 to 24 months? That that's a really good question. I think I mean I was reading a few weeks ago where the NAA, which is the National Apartment Association, by 2030 they're predicting a 4.2 million unit shortfall in apartments across the nation. And wow. the markets that we're investing in, people are moving. This might be a homer statement, but I do think multifamily, whether it's acquisition or development, is going to be a great investment opportunity over the next 24 months. I think with COVID and the all the stimulus that the Fed's pumped out, inflation is, is either started or is eventually going to have to start. And real estate is a great hedge against inflation. When inflation happens, rents go up, which increases pricing. So I, I think it's just a great place to put your money. Love it. Love it. Last couple of questions, bro. What technology are you using right now that you feel like is really helping you scale your company and grow your team? That's one thing in the real estate industry. I, I think technology is lacking a little bit. Mm-hmm. And with my job, I'm looking at deals, talking to brokers, talking to investors. So I don't have to use too many advanced technology systems. We do have an investor management software that I think it's built sort of like a TD Ameritrade or Charles Schwab. So yeah, it gives our, a portal. Exactly. So it gives our investors confidence and credibility that we aren't a fly by night <laughs> shop. And then, I mean, I spend a lot of time in Excel. I spend a lot of time in HubSpot and my CRM, just reaching out to brokers or investors or whoever I need to talk to it that day. Cool, man. What portal are you using? I know there's a lot out there. Yeah, we we got IMS last year. Yep. That's the one. A lot of people are using IMS. Yeah. It, so far, it's been pretty good. It gives investors a snapshot of all their investments and also it helps significantly on the capital raise. And then if you don't have a portal like that, even DocuSign, using DocuSign can help significantly with a capital raise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like you said, recording webinars, hosting webinars, doing a pitch deck versus sending somebody a business plan. Yeah. Business plans are old. You know, it's like, it's just like in the angel investing space, like these kids, they're all, everybody's thinking that way, like quick, fast infographics has been a big deal. You know, visual 
anything people can see that are numbers brought into visual, you know, presentation versus paragraph is always a good thing. So like a lot of my stuff, I do it in infographics. And so what what you would maybe have to read in four paragraphs, I have a graphic and then I have it in bullet points on the side. It's a lot easier just to get through and people grasp that a lot easier. So that's good, man. What's your big why, bro? Like, why are you doing what you're doing? Like what gets you out of bed? And you're a real estate entrepreneur, obviously. You're investing in so many different facets of the real estate industry. Why do you do what you do? I think my why has changed over time. Initially, it was to get out of corporate America. And that took really 10 plus years. But as soon as that happened, my why changed. I'm a man of faith. And I feel like God has gifted me and given me abilities that I can generate and create wealth maybe easier than other people can. Or I've been surrounded by the resources to do that. So now my big why right now is to keep growing generational wealth, create a foundation and give back to some of the organizations that are near and dear to my heart. And that's what's driving me right now. And I'm sure as I age and evolve, I'll get another why. But yeah, (laughs) love it, bro. That's good. So you had a book you recommended, The Success Principles by Jack Canfield. Yes. Tell me a little bit about that, why you suggested it as a book for our listeners to pick up. Yeah. After I suggested that book, there's really two books I think that has played an instrumental role in my, honestly, my life since I became a real estate investor. And I think it's that one. And it taught me to, I need to create, I need to take 100% ownership of everything. I've heard the quote that life is 90% of what happens and 10% how you react. You just, no matter what happens, there's going to be things in real estate in your personal life that don't go according to plan and you need to be able to take 100% responsibility for it. I've, I've always been a person that's been a realist and I tend to get down on myself if things don't go according to plan or if they don't go how I put them in my mind. So it taught me to learn how to celebrate all wins, even the small ones. And I think that's been important during COVID. I think it's also taught me that you need to align your, I guess, your end vision and take incremental steps each day to get there. And over 80 years or 40 years, you'll see how these little steps created this massive wealth or massive gains that you were looking for. And then I'll just plug a second book, which is Miracle Morning. I don't know if you've heard of it, but no, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it was huge and changing my mindset. I think changing my mindset was the biggest key to my success. And that reading every day and writing every day, I I think was a big part of it. Love it. Love it, bro. Well, man, thank you for being on the show. If you want to, I'm going to give you an opportunity to leave our listeners with a final thought, like whatever you want to share, leave them with whatever's on your heart and whatever you want to share with our team, with, with the people that are listening. Yeah, thank you for allowing this. And I think what's on my heart is I came from a small town and really didn't even understand what real estate investing was. And when I started understanding it and seeing what real estate can do for not only you and your family, but for communities and tenants that you impact, I started creating all these goals and creating visions and I'd share them with people. And some of them were like, there's no way that's going to happen. And I, I started surrounding myself with people that had done it before and had yep. bought a thousand units or two thousand units or whatever. And when you put yourself around people who've actually done it, you can start seeing it and believing and achieving it. And you can 
achieve anything you want to. And I mean, I think you're proof of that. You made it to the NFL and have had a successful business career. And I think if you put in the work, you can achieve anything you want to. Hey, and you're one of the witnesses, bro. You saw me as a skinny little freshman walking in the hallway. <laughs> you know, two-star recruit from East Texas, humble beginnings, single mom growing up in the country. Just hard work, bro. And so I'm proud of you, man. I, you know, it was cool because I obviously I remembered your name, and then when I seen your face, I was like, bro, I know you. Like, so I'm, I'm and I, you know, obviously I knew that. That's why we connected. But it was just, it's just cool to connect and see the successful things that you've done since we were freshmen, 18 year old freshmen at Kane Hall in 2001. You know, that's what 20, 20 years ago. So, man, I'm proud of you. I'm gonna connect with you offline, man. Maybe we can do some deals together. Awesome. That sounds great. And thank you again for having me on. Yeah. And anything I can do to help you, just reach out to me, brother. Okay. And All same right. goes for you. All right. See you soon, man. All right. Bye. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of The Real Estate Entrepreneur with Terrence Murphy. Please subscribe on whichever platform you are listening and consider leaving a five-star review as that will help us gain traction and continue to bring you knowledge in the real estate industry. For more content, head over to TerrenceMurphy.com. 